This is Hannah Nordby with NDSU Adams County Extension, and you're listening to Agriculture Applied. Innovate, relate, create with NDSU Extension. On this week's episode, Chris Augustine of the Dickinson Research Extension Center joins me to discuss soil acidity issues that have been popping up for farmers in southwest North Dakota. I invite you to grab a cup of joe and settle in to ponder innovative ideas and reflect on generational changes, which can help us create a better tomorrow. You're not going to want to miss out. We're live. Hello, everybody. This is Hannah Nordby, and welcome to Agriculture Applied. Today, I am here with Chris Augustine, and he is the director of the NDSU Dickinson Research Extension Center. A little bit of a mouthful. I had to pause and make sure I was saying it all eloquently and nice and everything. But I Your think I got it all. Your was, was uh, perfect. Well, cool. Welcome, Chris. I'm glad you could be a part of uh, an episode on agriculture applied. Uh, I guess we'll Thank just... you for asking. Yeah, of course. I'm glad we can make it work. Well, without further ado, we'll kind of just jump into things with the first question. As the director up in Dickinson at the Research Extension Center, first, can you explain your day-to-day activities? And then the second part to the question which we'll get to into in a little bit, but it mostly just talks about how in your past life you were a soil health specialist and how do you utilize that experience as a director. So we'll focus on the first question and then we'll make sure we wrap up with the last part of that. Sure. So my, my day-to-day activities, there's nothing really uh, set in stone. There's times where I'm doing nothing but paperwork. Other times, uh, be, being a soil researcher, I'm, I'm out in the field putting crops in, uh, running combine, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then also uh, with my past experience uh, being an extension specialist, uh, outreach is really um, where, where I learned uh, the ropes uh, of uh, NDSU and, and so I'm still involved with many uh, outreach activities. And, and, and so some of the experiences with my past uh, to help me uh, be here today is I was in Minot for eight years as a soil health specialist. Four years before that, I was at the Carrington Research Extension Center. And, and, and so um, I, I've been, been across the state. I, I, I grew up uh, about 30 miles from Canada, 30 miles from Minnesota on a small family farm. I'm a farm kid who likes science, uh, and so literally, I've I've lived in every corner of the state now. So I, I think I have a good grasp of production agriculture in our state. But then the other thing is being at those different research centers and learning from my colleagues and and learning from my directors uh, it was just a really good experience on uh, uh, different ways to to help uh, solve issues and uh, that sort of thing. You know, I didn't realize that you've been in all those different segments and whatnot, and you don't settle down at one place for too long, do you? Hopefully, you'll be in Dickinson for a while, though. I'm going to be here for a while. I was in Carrington for uh, almost five years, and I was in Minot for uh, uh, just about nine years, so it seems like it doubles, so I, I'll probably be here for, you know, if we follow that, 20 years or so. Well, there you go, keeping them in line up there, right? <laughs> yep, yep. Alrighty, well, the primary topic that we're wanting to cover today is soil acidity. 
to kind of just start at ground level and everything, traditionally, what is the soil type in Southwest North Dakota? Sure. So in Southwest North Dakota, we have all sorts of different soil types. We have clay soils, we have sandy soils, we have loamy soils, everything across the board. But one of the things that's special to uh, West River versus other areas of the state is we have a lot of kaolinite clay in our parent materials. And so parent materials are, are the minerals that the soils form from. And so kaolinite, um, because of its structure, we call it a one-to-one -one clay and it's made up of silicon and, and uh, aluminum and oxygen. And the way I kind of think of it is, is like an open face peanut butter sandwich. And so you have all these peanut butter sandwiches stuffed on top of each other. And when you compare that to schmectitic clays, which we call that a two to one clay. So that's like a piece of bread, some, um, some peanut butter, then another piece of bread. Um, because it has that extra layer of bread, it has a higher buffering ability or resistance to change. And so when we look at soils uh, to the east, their cation exchange capacity is much greater because of these schmectitic clays versus us that have the open face peanut butter sandwich, those kaolinite clays, um, it has, it has less uh, cation exchange capacity. So it can't hold on to uh, different cations or positively charged um, molecules or ions in the soil. And because of that, the buffering ability of our soil uh, isn't as great. So it doesn't resist change as, as much uh, over to the east. Okay. So, and from what I'm understanding and grasping, you know, this has led to, as we have gotten it more so into no-till, this has some of the, um, I don't want to say consequences, that's not the right word, because I think no-till is a wonderful tool, and I don't want people to view it in a negative way by any Just means. an impact, I think, is a okay. good word for it. Okay, so an impact from having, practicing no-till for years and years in Southwest North Dakota, um, is that these producers have started seeing some of these changes in pH? Is that the primary event or what other factors have like led up to these changes? In so so for, for us out here in the Southwest, it's a combination of the clays and also our tillage systems with our fertilizer practices. And so it doesn't matter if you're putting on manure for fertilizer or urea or ammonium sulfate or monammonium phosphate, take your pick. Um, that is gonna mineralize and become a plant available nutrient at some point. And as that uh, fertilizer mineralizes and becomes plant available, hydrogen is released. And over time, the hydrogen accumulates. And when we measure pH, we're measuring the concentration of hydrogen. The more hydrogen that's present, the more acidic the soil is. Now, if you wanna compare us to areas uh, further east, uh, th th there's a number of areas where they're actually seeing the pH increase. And, and that's a function of tillage. Because um, us out here, we, the majority of producers aren't no-tilling, so we're, we're, or they are no-tilling, so they're building soil. Versus you go east, they're eroding soil. And here and to the east, there's a lot of limestone naturally in our soils. But um, because of years and years of erosion, um, there, there's a number of fields 
that are, that no longer truly have topsoil. It's a mixture of your BK horizon or your B horizon that has some limestone in it with your A horizon. So if your pH is increasing, you probably have a soil degradation issue and um, you need to, you should be looking at some measures, whether it's uh, putting some cover crops down, reducing uh, tillage intensity, shelter belts, you know, there, there, there's all sorts of ways to help curb uh, e erosion. And so that should be something uh, looked at as well. No, that, that makes sense and everything. You know, how exactly did we start picking up that pH change was the issue? Sure. So uh, back when I was in college, almost 20 years ago now, so that's that's weird to say. Um, my professors would have looked at me weird if I talked about acidic soils, because for the longest time, we've assumed their pHs were hovering right around seven or were greater because we have a lot of uh, limestone within our within our soil uh, all throughout the state. Um, so some of the things I, I, I think would help to start picking it up uh, would be some of those agronomists uh, that got their boots on the ground on a day-to-day -day basis that are working with those progressive producers that are using precision agriculture techniques. So their zone sampling or grid sampling using the GPS and they're, you know, more so managing their, their fields on a per acre basis versus a full field basis. And when we uh, look at the soil acidity issue, they tend to be in the depressional areas or they could be at the summits. You rarely see it on the side hills. So I, I, I think those, um, th those progressive producers that really started adopting uh, the precision egg, more, more so the zone sampling, the grid sampling, but uh, they, they found these areas that were acidic and then um, running around the state working uh, w w with all sorts of people and talking to people about this issue that that really started putting it on our radar. Um, oh, maybe five years ago or so. And, 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 and so uh, since, since then, uh, Ryan Beto, our cropping systems specialist at the Dickinson Research Extension Center, and I um, have been doing work on, on lo looking at ways or recommendations on how to remediate uh, acidic soil issues. Yeah, I remember I had just become an extension agent in 2019, it was January, and they had DDD in Dickinson, which is diversity dollars and, hmm, do you know the third D? I, I, I don't, I've been to that program a couple of times. Uh, Kurt would probably be upset with me if he found out I didn't know what the third D meant, but. <laughs> Well, it's DDD and it's a yeah. good program. And so if you're in the Dickinson area and you see it advertising, you should definitely check it out. But yeah, it's I, usually uh, about the first or second week of January. Right. So I was pretty green behind the ears and I went up to Dickinson for that. And yeah, I remember I, I think it was Ryan probably who was talking about it and just bringing awareness to producers and everything which kind of leads into my next question of, since first discovering this new challenge, what has been the process of rolling out the content to, you know, first and forum producers, and then you're gathering data and then developing a plan to overcome these issues? Sure, so, so the first, I guess, thing that we've really been working on is awareness, just so producers understand what's going on. and. And what happens when your soils become too acidic, uh, usually end up with nutrient tie up. 
Uh, so you can put on a whole bunch of phosphorus, but you still could see phosphorus deficiencies. Uh, biological activity is curbed under those acidic conditions. So uh, the nodulation that we typically would see on our, on our chickpeas and other pulses, that activity can be reduced. You might see a nitrogen deficiency, or in some cases, uh, we've worked with a couple producers, they've put um, adequate amounts of fertilizer down, you know, putting their standard rate of urea, 11.52.0, whatever, but you still don't have the biological activity going on in that environment to even convert those, um, the, the, those conventional fertilizers. And the other thing that it does is it can cause manganese toxicity. So uh, canola is susceptible to that. We've documented a lot of that and it kind of looks almost like an iron chlorosis or a cross between that and a potassium deficiency. So you, you start seeing like leaf margins are looking sick and then the inner veins of, uh, of the leaves will become chlorotic. Uh, so that reduces stands. And then in our small grains, we see aluminum toxicity and, and too much aluminum really curbs root development. And when you're as dry as we've been um, for, for a couple of years now, uh, that can significantly uh, re reduce your yield just because of the lack of water uptake, but then you pair that with your nutrient deficiencies and it's kind of a snowball effect rolling down the hill. Um, I'm sorry, what was the other part of that, that question, <laughs> Hannah? How about, you know, so you have this information, you've collected the data, and I'm sure it's been a process of collecting data and then informing people, and then you collect more data, and then you have kind of, you tweak stuff and whatnot, but what about developing a plan to overcome these issues because I'm sure that's kind of what a lot of people are like oh okay well great now that I know what the problem is what do I do to solve it sure so uh, back to getting people uh, up up to date on that we did come out with an extension circular called what is soil acidity uh, that came out uh, oh right around the first of the year it's SF uh, 2012 uh, that kind of goes through where you're going to see it, what's going on. Uh, it talks a little bit about needing a liming amendment to curb these issues. And we know that we need a liming amendment. And by that, I'm talking about like calcium carbonate. I've seen some uh, producers use things like gypsum, that's calcium sulfate. And the thought is the calcium is going to increase the pH, but calcium and hydrogen are both cations. They're positively charged in the soil. So the calcium and the, uh, the hydrogen, they're going to repel, like putting two positive magnets against each other. What can happen under those conditions is as that calcium enters that soil solution, the sulfate all of a sudden can bind to hydrogen and then you create sulfuric acid. Um, you still have the same amount of hydrogen present, so it doesn't really impact your pH, but um, don't expect a pH improvement from using some amendments like that. You need something to react with the hydrogen. So you need something negatively charged. Limestone is calcium carbonate. That's Ca, the calcium, then CO3. Uh, it binds with the hydrogen and it produces some CO2. And then it'll also produce some water with that reaction. Then you got some free flowing calcium. Some of the things that we have noticed is um, you may see an occasional calcium deficiency on some of these acidic soils. So putting some gypsum down can help alleviate that, but you still are going to have the issues of uh, the nutrient deficiencies, the aluminum toxicity, some of that, but it can help uh, a, a little bit. Um, but really to fix it, you need to have some sort of lime amendment. And so we, we've been playing around with um, 
putting pelletized lime in furrow. Ryan's done some research where he's putting small rates like 50 or 100 pounds per acre with the seed to uh, have a localized effect. And then the, the work I've been doing uh, has been more so field-wide, well, not field-wide, but um, acidic soil-wide because we want to be site-specific with these practices because they're, they're, they're pretty expensive. Um, but we've been uh, conducting uh, liming trials, looking at what's the pH are we starting with, putting down different rates of lime, uh, tracking the yield, the, the quality of uh, various crops, and then uh, sticking a soil probe in the soil at the end of the fall and seeing, okay, we went from a pH of 4.3 and with four tons of lime, we brought it up to a 6.7 or whatever the case is. So we're, we're, we're doing uh, some wide scale uh, research in order to come up with recommendations. Um, one particular project that we have going on right now is called the Hula Hoop Lime Project. And I, I, I think uh, we, we got some great uh, support from our, our local commodity groups on this project, but I think they looked at me like I was crazy when I told them I'm gonna buy 300 hula hoops. <laughs> and uh, but when you stack them all on top of each other, that's uh, just about chest high. I got a picture of me standing in all these hula hoops before we're putting them out in the field. But um, the research that's been done on, on coming up with a Lyme recommendation, uh, is usually done in a greenhouse. We don't have a greenhouse at the Dickinson Research Extension Center, but the other thing is if you collect soil and bring it into a greenhouse, that soil is no longer no-till because you destroy all this pore structure, um, you know, all those channels that water and, and lime could, could be incorporated in, the, you mess with the integrity of that sample. So the idea of this is we're going out to farmer fields and putting up these small plots using the hula hoops as kind of our, our our greenhouse pot, so to speak, and taking soils samples just on the outside of it, putting down the different lime rates, and then we're hand harvesting everything uh, within that hoop. And then uh, later in the fall, we'll be coming back out to soil sample to see how we we change that. And 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 so we're we're not quite there yet to make a recommendation uh, based on soil tests, but um, you know may, maybe in about a year we're we're, we're getting close. I'm. We, we just about have enough data that, that, that I'd feel confident uh, making some recommendations. Um, without seeing a soil test, plan on, uh, you, you know, two to maybe six tons of lime to the acre. Um, but we, 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 we really need to figure this out because uh, the beet lime that I've been using for my research um, was somewhere around $50 a ton delivered and we're getting it from Sydney, Montana. It's a byproduct of the sugar refining process. Um, but to get a ton from Sydney to, to Dickinson by semi, uh, about $50 a ton. And then we got another $10 a ton or so involved in that application fee. So that's why we want to be specific and we want to get these numbers right because that's, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, a hundred plus dollars an acre. And, and we know we're, we're in a world with tight margins and we just want to make sure that um, everybody is successful and has good soil health out there. Now, my follow-up question was talking about some of the pros and cons of what steps can be taken in com combating these pH issues. I think you've touched on that a little bit. Is there anything else that you would like to add to that discussion or considerations sure. you would want producers to think about when they're facing these challenges? 
Sure. So some of the things that, that like, like I said, you want a liming amendment. Uh, and so there's calcitic limestone, there's dolomitic limestone, there's all sorts of different things. Um, and, and I wouldn't get too worked up about that unless, unless you have a soil that's lacking calcium, maybe you want some calcitic uh, limestone, or, or if you have some manganese or, or excuse me, magnesium uh, deficiencies, you, you know, maybe, maybe look for a source with dolomitic limestone. Um, but the other thing is not all limestone is created equal. The, the sugar beet waste lime that we are using um, is somewhere around 75 to 80% lime. Uh, whereas if we were to buy the pelletized lime, that's close to 100%, you know, 98% or so uh, limestone. So you need to put on more beet lime to make up for that. And, and so if you're trying to compare apples and apples, you're, you know, this is how much it costs to, um, haul the limestone to my, my way versus if I buy the pelletized beet lime, you know, keep in mind that you're going to have to put on a little bit more uh, sugar beet waste lime. But then another amendment that's uh, available too in a lot of areas uh, are, is wastewater treatment lime. Uh, and, and so most municipalities have that. Uh, so, so there is a lot of sources out there, but regardless of the source, unless I'm buying that pelletized lime from uh, a dealer, I would want to get it tested on a regular basis. Uh, so some of the work that I've done, I've gotten batches of beet lime that have been uh, like 63 or so percent lime, and then the next load is close to 80. So it's something you want to test on a regular basis. You're applying the right rate, uh, and, and you're you're maximizing uh, your your input costs. So you don't want to be putting on too little or too much. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. So true or false, if you're a farmer and you've discovered that you have some pH issues that you need to control, that moving forward, it's going to be something that's just going to fit into your management practices? Or is there a one-time cure-all treatment option for them? Sure. So, so there's a couple things uh, with that. Um, some of the things that we're doing at the Dickinson Research Extension Center includes uh, variety evaluations. So that would be kind of be the Band-Aid if you know you have some problematic acres. Uh, this wheat variety or this soybean variety might be a better choice than, than another cultivar. Um, but in the long run, to fix it properly, you need to put some lime down. Um, that's that's ultimately the right way to the not the right way but the only way to fix it and some of the growers that we're working with um you know they're they're, they're saying uh boy a hundred hundred uh, 150 dollars an acre i don't know if i can i can afford that on my rented land and 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 so that's that's probably true that that's tough to pencil out one of the things that we believe is because our soils have acidified due to um, management practices that this might be a once every 10 year thing. Maybe it's a once every 20 year thing. We're trying to set up a long-term trial at, at the Research Extension Center here um, to answer that question. What's, the, what's that frequency? Some work out of Saskatchewan uh, indicates that uh, under these management practices from the fertilizer, uh, it, it's it, it's probably going to be a once every 10 year thing and not like if you farm in Ohio or somewhere southeast of here, they have the acidic soils are more prevalent. They're liming on an almost annual basis. 
Um, so, so the producers anyways, that are um, renting that land, I, I think the Band-Aid treatments for now is probably the way to look at it. Ch ch uh, pick crop species that are more uh, tolerant, uh, pick those cultivars that are more tolerant, and maybe some of that in-furrow um, liming applications is, are, is the way to go. On my, on my own personally owned acres, I would want to be putting uh, that lime investment into it because uh, you're improving it for yourself and you're probably uh, improving it for those you're going to hand that, that land off to someday. Right, forward thinking. Yep. Now, if a Bruce producer is listening and thinking to themselves you know that sounds like me or i've had that happen or yep yep i've got that issue there too what should their first step be or first step singular soil test you don't know what's going on below your feet without a soil test um and what we're seeing with these areas uh, that, that are acidic they tend to be in lower depressional areas or on summits and the the reason is uh, if we start digging, if you want to come out and geek out with me in a soil pit, uh, give me a call. I'd be happy to do that any day. But if we start um, taking a soil probe at the top of a, of a hill, we call that the summit where it's somewhat level, um, that limestone tends to be uh, much deeper in that soil profile because it's had thousands and thousands of years of rain to leach that stuff down. Now, if we look at a side slope, all of a sudden that, um, that limestone is probably much closer to the surface. So um, if that's the case, then there's some natural buffering going on with this fertilizer acidification process. And, and that's because as the rain hits that surface, it runs off instead of infiltrates into the soil. And then when we get in those depressional areas, we, we have that microclimate where the rain that came from up the hill a little bit um, has gone down and, and those, those topsoils tend to be much thicker in those areas. And so the carbonates uh, in many cases is much deeper. And, and, and so that's why I think also we're, we're really pinpointing it better with the zone sampling. But so, so I'd wanna look at a couple of spots on the field like that, but that soil test. Um, if you go out and you soil test like a quarter section and you do that as a composite soil test, uh, we, we'd recommend you're doing 20, 20 or more soil tests and because um, that accounts for, um, what is it, 80% of the time it's within the true average of the field. Um, and, and, and so under those conditions, you may find it, you may not, you really need that precision egg to, to really pinpoint that area because a little sliver of um, of limestone can all of a sudden shoot up your your pH and it's um, it's going to be reported as alkaline you don't think there, there there's an issue um, so I, I would want to be site specific with that soil testing uh, generally we worry about a zero to six inch soil test and if you have some areas or you're getting some soil tests back that are less than six, I would start considering pulling some soil samples at a zero to three and a three to six inch depth. Um, that acidity is gonna be where you're putting that fertilizer year after year. Excuse me, so if you're surface applying, um, top couple inches is gonna have the acidity. If you're deep banding and hydrous, uh, that's where that acidity is going to exist and so um, but when you you break it off into those three inch chunks you can really pinpoint it um, to really evaluate an issue because there, there's 
uh, with some of these projects that we've had, you pull a zero to six inch uh, soil core and the pH is like five, eight or, 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 or six or whatever, and you don't think there's an issue, then all of a sudden you pull a zero to three and that has a pH less than five. And, and, and the thing is that that zero to three inch sample, that's where we're putting all of our seed, whether it's wheat, canola, corn, wh whatever, that's in a pretty harsh environment for that little plant to, to germinate from and then grow. I mean, we, we've seen in some instances that plants can grow out of it, um, but, but still it's, you know, it's making life tough for that little plant and uh, they're struggling so they aren't gonna produce the grain that they could in a, in a nicer environment. And, and, and so uh, the other thing to consider too, I've had this question a number of times. So if I'm pulling zero to three inch cores, can I make my phosphorus applications, my potassium applications based off of that? And my answer is no. Um, maybe at some point we will be there, but our current phosphorus, all of our, our, our current uh, fertilizer recommendations are calibrated to a zero to six inch core. And, and, and so if you've been putting phosphorus, you know, a couple inches from the surface year after year, that probably has a little bit more fertility than if you looked at your three to six inch core. Be the same thing, we hear about this nutrient stratification with long-term no-till and, and that's what's going on. And that could um, potentially throw you off and you, and you might cut yourself short on uh, uh, nutrients, even though maybe you fix the pH. So those are just a couple things I would consider with uh, uh, testing and, and trying to manage these areas. Right, something to keep on your radar and think through as you're figuring out your plan of attack. Well, I guess I'm down to my final question, unless you feel like we've missed anything or there's anything else that you want to go back on. Are we okay? I think we're okay. Okay, well, and if people have questions, they can reach out to their county extension agent and they'll probably be giving you or Ryan a call to get the you know get those questions answered our, our, our office number 701-456-1100 there you go all righty so now my final question which is as far as innovation goes what's something coming down the pipeline that excites and intrigues you i i, I think i'm really excited to see where the technology takes us um you know, you hear about things going in Fargo, that the Grand Farm project and the autonomous vehicles, which I don't know, I really like my tractor time. I don't know, I would, I would want to get, get rid of my, my time in a tractor driving a combine and that being a farm kid, I love driving equipment. But, you know, the technology is ever improving. We're, we're getting more data um, and, 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 and we're getting real time data too. So I, I think it's just this the, the, again, back to the snowball, I think it's just th things are getting bigger and, and better and, and the technology there, especially in, from my standpoint, being a soil scientist, um, trying to more efficiently, more effectively uh, manage uh, our, our inputs into the ground, um, that, that excites me. You know, we're, we're talking about variable planting rates on, on different uh, things nowadays. Uh, one recommendation that we've had for a number of years, if you have iron deficiency chlorosis, plant your good varieties, your high yielding varieties in those not so bad areas and plant your IDC tolerant varieties in those 
the, those difficult areas and, and, and the technology is caught up with the concepts on a lot of this and, and, and you know, the technology is only going further. Um, I'm excited to see what happens when uh, people go to Mars and that with Elon Musk. I'd, I'd love to give him my take on what it's going to take to uh, f farm the, the it's dirt right now on Mars. It ain't, it ain't soil till it has some organic matter on it. But I, I think there's some pretty, pretty interesting things there too. But yeah, you know, I'm <laughs> still need to f be focusing my stuff down this way on this planet anyways for now. Right, the International Space Station farm, an extension edition, right? Yeah, and, and, and growing up on a potato farm, I got a kick out of the Martian that he was a potato that he was farming potatoes to uh, stay alive till they they sent the rescue crew to come get him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Yeah, we were just planting. Side note, we were planting potatoes in our garden the other week and everything, and Mom and I were going. Probably shouldn't have should have been doing this around Easter. We might be kind of late, but hopefully it'll be a warm or a, we won't have an early winter. So we'll have to have time to harvest the fruits of our labor. What what varieties did you plant? Um, we did. I got this variety that came comes out of Montana, and it's um, it doesn't spike your glucose as much. Um, I'm spacing on the name, but it's purple. Okay. Um, and then she had some old seed potatoes from last year that, I mean, the eyes were you know, about a foot long and everything, sure. but. I was going to say, if they're dark red New Orleans, you'll, you'll make it no problem. Those are, those are pretty short lived. And then uh, the Pontiac potato, that's about the best tasting potato ever, ever made. But those ones are getting really hard to find. They, they aren't the prettiest potato, but they, they're, they're tasty. Right. Well, see, and listeners, now you just got the scoop on the best potatoes for your gardens. And yeah, you just never know what to expect when you tune into the latest episode of Ag Applied. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. And hopefully you enjoyed your time as well. I did. I, pre I appreciate uh, being on here. If you found yourself tapping along to our theme music, those rights go out to Chuck Suki. He sure can write a catchy tune. Thursdays are launch days for new episodes. A final thanks to Nolan Dix over on the mix board. Hair and makeup by Country Style. Coffee provided by George's and the Owl. Sure to keep you wide-eyed from sunup to sundown. And of course, to you, the listener, for your continued support. Agriculture Applied can be heard wherever podcasts can be found. If you're having trouble or have any sort of question, give me a call at 701-567-2735 and just ask for Hannah. Until next time, take care. Thank you.